Hey there, church. It's good to see you. It's, uh, I know it's good to see and hear from Merle as well, even if just by video. I know he's anxious to be back as, uh, as soon as possible. As he said, my name is Josh, and I am privileged to serve as one of the pastors here at Pleasant Valley, and it's an honor for me to get to share with you uh, here this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, um, uh, we would love for uh, you to go online and let us know that you're here, maybe for the first time, or maybe in the last several weeks you've joined us. You can do that by going to pleasantvalley.org forward slash connect, and would love to just know how we can serve you best, whether you're joining us online or here in the chapel uh, or in uh, the worship center. We're just grateful that you're here. As Merle said, we've been in this series over the last five weeks called Simply Jesus, where we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark, looking at these various titles and facets of Jesus' identity. And we see how that's played out in Jesus' life. Uh, I know that one of the practices that we regularly encourage in community groups is sharing our life story. Sharing our life stories are uh, important because uh, for two reasons. One, it helps us to grow deeper in relationship. That's obvious. But also sharing our story helps us understand why we are who we are. I can tell you from having heard probably hundreds of people's stories, one of the most common themes are memories of rejection. Experiences of rejection mark our stories and our memories in ways that other types of experiences just, just simply don't. In fact, our, our brains are actually hardwired to prioritize these rejection experiences, which I think is just one more affirmation of the fact that we are created for relationship. So all of us know and have felt rejection. We could say that all of our stories, in one way or another, have been marked by the pain of rejection. It's a universal experience. But let me ask you, have you ever thought about Jesus' experience of rejection? I know when I think about Jesus' life, uh, especially the end of his life, I tend to focus on his death. You know, I, I quickly jump to the, the physical reality of torture and just the, the excruciating pain of crucifixion. Maybe like me, you, you saw the Passion of Christ years ago, and you've had those images of just the brutality of Jesus' death just kind of burned into your mind. But I think it's important that as we come to look at the end of Jesus' life, we don't skip too quickly to focus just on the physical and miss out on the very real weight of rejection that Jesus experienced in his final days. In fact, it was such a significant experience that it's the very facet of his life that we're going to look at today. Jesus, the rejected. If you have your Bible and want to turn to Mark 14, that's where we're going to pick up. But in Mark 14 and 15, uh, we see that Jesus is on trial. He's in, on trial before the religious leaders, on trial before the political leaders. And it seems like Mark just... He just hammers on this theme of rejection at every turn. The trials and the rejection of Jesus are recorded to show us that really we are the ones who should be on trial. We ought to rightly see ourselves in these characters around Jesus who rejected him in his final hours because we see our own fallen tendencies in them. For our purposes this morning, we're going to look at three important elements as we examine this full passage of uh, Scripture in Mark. First, we're going to examine the response 
of those around Jesus. And spoiler alert, all of them rejected him. Okay, so we just know that. Second, we're going to look at how Jesus responded to that rejection. And then third, most important, we're going to look at how we should respond to him. There are five primary characters in this passage who rejected Jesus. And so let's quickly examine the motives for why each of them responded the way that they did and honestly look for our own tendencies that we see in them. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 43. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we've got it here on the screen for you. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. That's speaking of the disciples. In this first two sentences, Mark's choice of words paint this very clear picture of the duality of who Judas was. In verse 43, it says he was one of the 12. And then in the very next verse, uh, Mark refers to him as the betrayer. Jesus, or Judas rather, was a hypocrite. He said... He said all the right things. He did all the right things. I think it's even possible that in his own mind, he believed the things that he was saying and doing, or at least he thought he did. And yet in Jesus' final hour, we see that it is actually one of his closest companions who demonstrates the ultimate rejection by betraying him to the authorities. Judas was not deceived. Ultimately, he was a phony. He understood the truth and yet only posed as a follower of Christ. Think about the things that Judas had experienced. He had spent three years of his life being a firsthand witness to uh, the majority of the miracles that Jesus had performed. Think about it. He had seen demons cast out of people who were possessed. Uh, He had, had actually experienced the calming of a storm with simply a word from Jesus. He he had actually carried the baskets of bread and fish that he had seen multiplied by Jesus in order to feed thousands of people. He had witnessed lame people uh, who had been lame from birth stand up and walk. He had seen the blind receive sight, and he had seen sores of lepers instantly vanish. If anyone should have recognized that Jesus was the healer, it was Judas. But he shows us that a person can be very close to Jesus and yet still be lost. While he may have given intellectual assent to the truth, he never actually embraced Christ with heartfelt faith. The hypocrisy of Judas was in believing that Jesus could heal other people, but not himself. Judas had seen the healing of others in a way that was absolutely undeniable, 
but he clearly did not allow that same power to heal the brokenness of his own soul. Reality is all of us uh, are Judas. Where do you see yourself in his story? Where is there maybe a, a, a misalignment between what you say you believe and the way that you actually live? Where have you maybe believed that God can change other people but haven't believed that for yourself? Judas, the hypocrite, rejected Jesus as healer. But of course, he didn't act alone uh, in this. He was a convenient ally to those who hated Jesus the most, the religious leaders of his day. Going back to Mark 14, picking up in uh, verse uh, 53, rather. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and their testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimonies did not agree even on this. Jesus is now on trial before the religious leaders, this, this body of officials known as the Sanhedrin. We know that they had been looking for a way to get rid of Jesus for, for some time. They were ultimately envious of his, his popularity, uh, and he occupied a position of authority with the people that they were desperate to hold on to. His presence meant that they couldn't have their way, so they had to get rid of him. They saw Jesus as a threat. Jesus taught with authority, and yet they regularly were trying to test him. They were trying to trick him uh, by getting him to say something that was inconsistent uh, with the scriptures, but they never could, which ultimately only infuriated them all the more. They rejected Jesus as teacher. The Sanhedrin like to think of themselves as the good guys, and yet Jesus continually, over and over again, is insisting that they're not. In fact, they're just like everyone else in need of God's grace. His presence meant that they couldn't hold on to their position of power and of pride. Jesus was way more condemning of the religious leaders than he was of any other group of people uh, because if anyone should have been able to recognize him as the Messiah, it was them. They were the ones most educated in the Old Testament scriptures. And yet, I think we have to wonder, did, did they really even care if he was the Messiah? Were they really interested in whether or not he was the Savior, or did they just want power and authority? We see from their story that they chose to reject him and were even willing to accept false testimony against him to accomplish that goal. Note that this group is composed of highly religious people. They were rule followers who didn't want to let Jesus have control. They were rule followers who don't want to acknowledge their desperate need for God's grace. I wonder if, like me, that describes you at times. Maybe religiously devout, maybe a decent person. So where do you see yourself in these religious leaders? 
Where are you resisting surrender to Jesus because you know it requires giving up your own agenda? There's only two categories. There's totally sold out for Jesus or there's ultimately resistant to him like the Sanhedrin. And if you're resistant to him, he will be a threat. Following Judas's betrayal, it says that all of Jesus' followers fled. I mean, they they ran for the hills the first chance that they got. But Mark includes this uh, important side note uh, to the kind of this side narrative to what's happening here in verses 66 through 72. If we were watching maybe the, the cinematic version of this scene play out, we'd been focused in on Jesus as he's on trial. And yet it's almost like Mark kind of like pans the camera here to show us that there's actually a whole audience that are seeing uh, these events play out. And Peter is among them. And as he's there, a number of people around him begin to recognize him. And they say, weren't you? Weren't you with Jesus? Didn't we just see you with him? And of course, he denies it. In fact, three times he's confronted and denies it every time, each time more emphatically than the one before. Mark reminds us that Peter's denial had been predicted by Jesus just a short time before. But if you're familiar with that passage, you, uh, how, do you remember how Peter responded when Jesus suggested that he would betray him? Not me. I would never. It's almost like he's, he's incensed by, by the idea that Jesus would even suggest that. In fact, he says, even if every one of the other disciples reject you, I would never deny you, Jesus. It's almost like you can see him kind of puffing his, puffing his chest in pride as he says that. And yet Jesus said, no, it's gonna happen tonight before, uh, before the night is over, you will deny me three times. And that is exactly what happened. You know, on the surface, I think Peter uh, has so many qualities of a leader that we tend to look at as strengths. I mean, he's bold. He does not shy away from confrontation in any way. He's passionate and he seems to have kind of this charisma that probably drew people to him. He was very self-assured. And I think it was that self-confidence that ultimately led to his betrayal of Jesus in his moment of testing. I believe it was that self-reliance that ultimately led Peter to reject Jesus. Pastor Merle showed us a few weeks ago uh, that Jesus is the greatest leader of all time because he was the perfect servant leader. A servant leader is is not self-reliant, but rather selfless. A servant leader depends not on their own strength, but leans on the strength of someone far stronger. All of us are Peter. So where do you see yourself in Peter's rejection of Jesus? What is it that you say, I would never? Is that response based on your submission to Christ or is that based on your own strength? In relationships, in dealing with temptation, in your serving, where are you relying on what you can do rather than relying on what Jesus can do through you? Let's go back and look at our passage beginning in chapter 15. It says, as soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, the scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, they led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. 
So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you say so. And the chief priests accused him of many other things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things you're being accused of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom that they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why, what has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The Sanhedrin had condemned Jesus to death, but they didn't have the political authority to carry that out. And so Jesus is taken before Pilate, the local Roman governor. What I find perplexing about this man is that he knows that Jesus is innocent, and yet he is unwilling to act on it. There's already been a rebellion he's had to put down, and frankly, he's more concerned with keeping his job. Some have labeled Pilate a coward, but I don't think that that's really all that is at play here. Pilate is apathetic to the injustice happening right in front of him because something else seemed more important to him at that moment. Have you ever noticed how quickly circumstances can change your perspective on the seriousness of something? Perhaps you lose your job. That's, that's pretty significant. But then when your marriage collapses or you get test results that come back positive, all of a sudden, losing your job seems to to pale in comparison. Pilate, I think, represents the person who knows the truth about Jesus but is just too busy with lesser concerns to really take that question seriously. Like Pilate, they're apathetic to Jesus. There's plenty of excuses and lesser things that we allow to consume our attention. You might say to yourself, I'll get, I'll get serious about Jesus when I'm older. You know, maybe when I'm an adult. Once my kids are, are grown and gone. You know, when I'm in the next season of my career, maybe then I'll give more time and attention to this, to this Jesus thing. But do you see how foolish that is? None of us are promised tomorrow. I guarantee you that 100 years from now, the only thing that will seem significant is where you stand in relation to Jesus Christ. Pastor Corey showed us last week that Jesus the radical demands radical obedience, but it was not for a lack of seeing the truth that Pilate rejected Jesus. It was ultimately apathy and indifference. All of us are Pilate. So where do you see yourself in his response? What are the the lesser things that you are allowing your time and attention and concern to be consumed by? Ask yourself, 100 years from now, what will you wish you had done with your life today? The last main character we need to examine is 
the short-sighted crowd who rejected Jesus as king. You know, last week, Pastor Corey recounted for us the events of Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the very last time and he was received with, with the reception you would expect of a king. But that kind of reception stands in stark contrast to the reception of this crowd. Perhaps like me, you've, you've heard this crowd described as fickle. I mean, after all, you know, at one point they're hailing him as king, and yet just a few days later, they're wanting him dead. But I think there's enough circumstantial evidence to suggest that this is not the same people who had laid palm branches and laid their coats out before Jesus. Rather, these were willing pawns who were manipulated and driven by their own short-sightedness. I mean, how else do you explain the choice of Barabbas over Jesus? Barabbas was, he was a bad man by, by all accounts. He was a thief and a murderer. He was a domestic terrorist who was, who was uh, hated by both Jew and Roman alike. The crowd rejected Jesus as king and instead willingly exchanged him for a murderer. Who would make such a trade? Well, someone short-sighted. Someone who's looking only at their immediate situation. Someone who is maybe caught up in the moment and allowing their circumstances to make the decision for them. I'm confident that if they were to pause for just a moment and consider the long-term consequences of their actions, I doubt any of them would have really made that trade of Barabbas for Jesus. Setting a murderer free and a known terrorist, like it, it's not difficult to see how that's gonna play out. The crowd is really not that unique though. They're just like people throughout history and ultimately they're just like you and me. I think scriptures are littered with examples of people who made a short-term decision without really weighing the long-term consequences. We have examples of a brother who traded his entire birthright for a bowl of soup just to satisfy his fleeting hunger. Think about momentary fear that led to a whole generation of people wasting their lives wandering in the desert. A leader who missed out on experiencing God's promised land because of one disobedient act of frustration. A son who squandered his entire inheritance for temporary pleasures and is left groveling in the streets. An unchecked lust that led to the murder of an innocent man and to the death of a child. How many times have you looked back on your own life and wondered, what was I thinking? The deceptiveness of sin is that it is always short-sighted. It's been rightly said that sin will take you further than you wanna go, keep you longer than you wanna stay, and will cost you more than you want to pay. We are all short-sighted, just like the crowd. So where are you trading God's best for that momentary satisfaction? Where is your short-sightedness welcoming death at the very cost of life? We've seen how those around Jesus, for one reason or another, responded in rejection. And we've seen that we can't just stand in judgment of them. Ultimately, we really do identify with all of them if we're willing to be honest. So let's turn our attention to Jesus. 
the one who was on the receiving end of this rejection and examine how it was that he responded. This, this whole scene that we've seen played out here is uh, a supreme example of situational irony. When you consider who Jesus is, the absurdity and really the, the audacity of this whole scenario comes in, into focus. Think about it. The only perfect righteous man ever to live is on trial being accused by fraudulent witnesses. The word who authored the very scriptures is being challenged by the supposed experts of the law. The creator of the universe who spoke galaxies into existence is being attacked by his creation's shouts of crucify him. The king of kings who sat on the throne of of heaven is allowing himself to be put under the foot of a Roman governor. If anyone had the right to protest, it was Jesus. He would have not only been justified in doing so, but he had the ability to stop it at any moment. He had an army of angels at his fingertips, and yet that's not what we see. If you were to describe Jesus' response throughout this whole scenario in one word, what would you say? Was it, was it anger? There's no indication that he ever got angry. Was it uh, defensiveness? No, in fact, it says he refused to respond, never once defended himself. Was it, was it out of fear? There's no, no indications of any distress on Jesus' part. Was it maybe impatience? If anything, I feel like it's just the opposite. He's overly patient. So how about submission? Jesus' response to his rejection is that of submission. But it is not submission to the Sanhedrin. And it was not submission ultimately to to Pilate. It wasn't even submission to Judas or anyone else in the story. They all may have thought that they were in control throughout this story, but it's ultimately not Jesus uh, submitting to them, but to another. Jesus' posture throughout is one of submission to the Father. His betrayal, his trial, his rejection, his flogging, even his death were all part of the Father's will. And just as he had throughout his life, Jesus, to the very end, responded in complete submission to the Father. We know the rejection of Jesus was God's will because it had been foretold in Scripture. If you notice, when confronted by Judas, uh, Jesus had said, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. The prophet Isaiah, uh, the psalmist, the prophet Zechariah, and others, hundreds of years before, wrote foretelling about the torture, the physical torture that he would endure, about how he would be betrayed, the very specific way in which he would die, and ultimately that he would be rejected as Messiah and Savior. Isaiah and Psalm 118 specifically talk about the stone the builders rejected becoming the chief cornerstone in God's redemptive plan. Jesus' followers came to understand that his rejection was necessary for him to become the means of salvation to all people. Jesus' response to his persecutors was one of submission, not to them, but ultimately to the Father. 
Jesus was able to accept these circumstances because he knew who it was that he was submitting to. We see ourselves in the rejection of Jesus, and in contrast, we've seen Jesus' response to that rejection. It was a response of unwavering submission to the Father. But there's one more response that we need to look at uh, before we close. The most important question of all today is, what is our response to Jesus? There's one more character in this story that we have uh, only briefly mentioned up until now. Barabbas, this criminal who was spared. I want you to think for a moment about what it must have been like to be Barabbas. I mean, you know that you're guilty. You know, the, the crimes that you're accused of are not in dispute. You're a murderer. You're the leader of an insurrection. You're a rebel. You are a rightful prisoner and who should be on death row. You deserve the chains and you deserve ultimately crucifixion. But that afternoon, by the choice of the crowd, Jesus was condemned to death and Barabbas walked free. This strange religious man who by all accounts embodied perfect goodness had taken his place. Barabbas woke up that morning assuming that he would be dead by sundown. But instead, he spends that evening probably eating dinner with his friends. I know I've often wondered, what was Barabbas' response to being set free? You know, think about it. When, when those chains were actually removed, like, what did he do? You think he, he ran away as quickly as he could, thinking, I got to get out of here before they realize the mistake they've made? You know, or was he maybe overjoyed, just celebrating, you know, this, uh, his good fortune that he had experienced? You think maybe he went and thanked the crowd, thinking that they were the ones who were responsible for his salvation. I wonder if he ever turned and looked even for a moment at Jesus, considering the fact that he was taking his place. Or does he just disappear into the crowd and become one of the faceless voices who is chanting crucify him? Ultimately, we don't know how Barabbas responded. None of the gospel writers tell us. But this character Barabbas, this rebel who is spared, might give us one of the clearest pictures in all of the gospels of what Jesus' rejection is really all about. There were three people scheduled to be crucified that day. And indeed, there were three men crucified, but only two of them actually deserved it. Jesus, who was sinless and innocent, willingly took the just punishment of a guilty man so that man could go free. Friends, Barabbas is me. Barabbas is you. He's all of us. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8 says. There is only one appropriate response to a gift like that, and it's a response of Surrender. Our greatest challenge is not in trying harder. It's not in being more disciplined or being more religious or just being better. Our greatest challenge is in believing the gospel. And believing the gospel is, is knowing, coming to realize that we are more wicked than we could ever dream and we are more loved and accepted than we dare hope. 
Both are true at the same time. If you're here and don't know Jesus as Savior, you woke up this morning just like Barabbas, guilty and destined for death. But like Barabbas, you can experience freedom today, right now. Through his rejection, Jesus is the only way to salvation. And accepting that free gift begins with admitting the truth. It begins with admitting, first and foremost, that I am a sinner in need of rescue. And then in believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the rejected savior who died in your place and rose again three days later. And then confessing with your mouth, acknowledging that he is the Lord of your life because you have responded in surrender to him. If you are here today and you're ready to make that decision, we would love to talk with you after our service. Or if you're watching online, we would love for you to go to pleasantvalley.org forward slash connect and let us know how we can help you. We've seen that those around Jesus rejected him. And we've had to acknowledge that is all of us, that we also have rejected him. And yet the most important question for each of us today is how are we responding to Jesus? Will you pray with me? Father, would you just cleanse us of any pride that we might point to in ourselves, knowing that every single one of us have rejected you? Father, we come today to you, humbled by just the scandalous nature of the gospel. Father, that you would send your son, perfect and sinless, to accept the punishment that we rightly deserve. Father, help us to respond to you today and every day in the only appropriate way. Father, to respond to you in obedience. Father, we love you and we thank you. Amen.